Good morning. I'm going to have you turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 52 this morning. Just by way of reminder, what we do as God's people when we gather together, we open God's Word, not just because it's tradition, it is tradition among God's people. We open God's Word because it is God's Word. And as God's people, we want to know His mind, we want to know truth, and so we want to receive God's Word together. So what we're doing this morning is what we try to do every morning. We know this is from God, and what we do is we seek to understand it as God's people. We want to make it plain, and then receive it, submit ourselves to it uh, together. And so since we had communion, and it's a big passage, uh, efficiency is going to be the order of the day. We'll You can judge if we pull that off or not. Uh, But what I want to do is I want to take it in three rounds. So we're going to be looking at essentially the same thing, but we're going to take a a kind of a bird's eye view, uh, come down into the details, and then try to draw some significance from it. So in these three rounds, we want to take a look at God's Word together. And so before we even read it, um, let me point out an initial theme uh, that we find. And the theme is not arresting Jesus. Okay? It's a narrative of not arresting Jesus. If you recall, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they do not arrest Jesus there. They want to. They are seeking to kill him. You can look if you're already there in verse 25. Uh, he's teaching before the crowd and they say, is this not the person? Is this not the guy that, who they want to kill? Prior to that, you can go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 18. They started hatching a plot to kill Jesus. They're seeking to arrest him. See this, and and here's where I want you to see it in, in our particular passage. If you look at verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The other side of this is that they have opportunity. Verse 26, they point out, he's right there. So They're seeking to arrest him. They want to do that. They have opportunity. He's right there. Even before Jesus gets there in verse 11, the authorities are going around saying, where is he? Where is he? And if you're a member of the public, a member of the crowd who's just worshiping there at the temple, you go like, he's right there. But they don't. No one laid a hand on him. No one laid hands on him. Now why? How is that possible when they're seeking him, verse 11, and everybody's so nervous about it, verse 13? I mean, he's outnumbered from a human perspective. Well, the two ways to look at this, and and we see both in the passage. One of the reasons that they don't arrest him, it is the narrative of not arresting Jesus is that from a human perspective, they're too uncertain. It's not clear yet. Uh, they, they have these divided opinions. We'll see this in verse 43. There are these different ideas about who Jesus is and maybe who He's not. Um, but they're not certain that they can. You know, the, uh, Jesus is blowing them away in terms of the way He's speaking, the way uh, He's uh, 
you know, engaging them. And this has a big effect on the, on the people and the leaders send these officers to arrest him. And it has a big effect on them. So it, it serves to, even if they're not sure, you know, that he is who he is, they're not sure that he's not. And so from a human perspective, you know, there's a lot going on there. From a divine or the divine perspective, look at verse 30. Some were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't God's time. People have their time. You've probably noticed this if you've been a believer for a while. You have things in your mind that you have a timetable for, and it would just go swimmingly if the Lord agreed with you as far as the timetable goes, right? God's timetable is different than theirs. And God is up to something, and it's unsettling to people, but it's God's plan that will prevail. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to read as we go. Here's the second round, okay? So we started with, here's this thing of not arresting Jesus. That's a narrative of that. And the second is to see it in scenes. We're going to just point out four, and keep in mind the context. They're celebrating the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus didn't go up right when it started. He went up in the middle. He's on the temple grounds, he's teaching, and the crowd sees him. And so the first scene opens up in verses 25 through 31. Let's read that together. This is God's word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But... We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the first thing we see in scene one, if you want to call it that, is Jesus is in the open. Again, that's the setting. You go all the way back to verse 11, and before Jesus ever gets there to celebrate the feast, all the authorities are looking for him. You know, where is he? Where is he? And it's freaking the people out. They don't even want to talk about it because they don't want to be dragged in by the authorities to be interrogated. There's several things to note here. This is a continuation of that situation. I, I'm, verse 25 just picks up where it left off. And Jesus had been engaging the crowd and he told them, number one, my teaching is from God. And number two, you guys are a bunch of murderous hypocrites who wouldn't know what honoring God's law looked like if a commandment slapped you in the face, which it did. And the people start asking by the time we get here, verse 25 and 26, what's going on? They're looking for him. He's right there. Um, We also see one popular assumption of the people. Notice that in verses 26 and 27. When there's speculation, why aren't they arresting him? He's right in the open. Have the authorities started to believe in him? But they dismiss that. It's, we know where he's from, you know, so he can't be somebody because we know where he's from. 
can't be the guy. He can't be the, the one. And Jesus answers them in verses 28 and 29. Oh, really? You know where I have, he, he keeps pointing this out. It's a theme in John where he talks about being sent, where he's from. And um, it's, it just keeps showing up again and again in John because the people on the ground don't see it. He's just a guy from Galilee. He's just a teacher. He hadn't even gone through all the right schools and all that stuff. And what he tells them is, where is he from? He's from the one who sent him. He's from his father who sent him. It's like hint. There's a lot of, if you read commentaries in John, they call it Johannine irony. There are a lot of things that get stated and the, and the reader gets to see it. We get clued into it. But the people on the ground, they don't see the obvious, right? So it's something that's true and they, they miss it. Or it's something that they miss that turns out to be true, you know. So they're basically saying here, obviously Jesus can't be the one because we know where he's from. And Jesus keeps pointing it out. He's not exactly what they expect. There's a second popular assumption among the people that shows up here too, and it's that the Christ is going to be doing these signs, um, that they, they assume that they're going to be demonstrations of his credentials, and Jesus is putting a lot of evidence in front of people. Right? That's, that's a big part of it. What Jesus does makes them think, you know, he could, he could be the one. Healing a guy on the Sabbath, for example. And then again, verse 30, he's not arrested yet, but he's not. Okay, so Jesus in the, is in the open. Let's look at the second part, verses 32 through 36. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me? And you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So this is scene two. And what we find here is that the, the leaders commission officers to arrest him. Right? They hear what's going on, and they decide, okay, and they have something that's like a, a temple police force. Okay? It wasn't a, a, like, it's not a police force exactly like what you would think of, but it's, it's somebody who would keep order there. That was very important under Roman rule. It's also very important as far as the form of worship. So they hear the buzz in the crowd and they commission this temple police. And Jesus makes a statement about that. He had just talked about where he's from, right? Yeah, I'm from the one who sent me. And now he's talking about where he's going. I'm returning to the one who sent me. I'll remain a little longer and then I'm going back. And no one there understands. They use the word dispersion, like in history, um, when the Jewish people were sent to exile, they were sent all over the, you know, the different regions around their homeland. And so the, the population out there in those places remained. And so they're speculating. That this, part of the reason John brings this up, it looks like, is because they're so clueless. When Jesus talks obviously about returning to the Father, they're wondering if he's just going to the region next door. You know, is he going to become some kind of an itinerant preacher outside of uh, outside of the, you know, the real place like Jerusalem and whatnot. But anyway, there you go. They set a group of officers to uh, arrest him. We'll see how that goes. Let's look at the, thir the third scene, verses 37 through 39. Keep in mind, we're at the feast. 
says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Scene three, middle of the feast. They get to the last day, and he's in the middle of everybody, and he makes a great claim. Um, it's the last day. There's a little bit of debate. I don't know that this is super important, but this, it's officially seven days with an eighth day tacked on. If you look at the Old Testament law and how they, um, you know, ordered stuff. And there's a curiosity among commentators. Is this the, the last day, day number seven, or is it day number eight, kind of the concluding finale? But Jesus does three things here. And so, I mean, we're not sure, but it, it looks like whatever else we should make of that, we should, we should see the clear part. It is winding down, right? And so this is the crescendo. And Jesus does three things. Number one, he cries out, verse 37. Um, and there are people who like to make a statement and be bold. Uh, this is one of those. I tend not to want to do that. I'm on stage a lot, but, you know, I'm one of those people that I'd, I'd be embarrassed if I was, you know, too outgoing or whatnot. This word here has some intensity to it. He cried out. I mean, it's out there what he says. I mean, he's screaming. Okay, he's yelling it out. It's something that you're not going to miss. And so sometimes it's hard for us to think, I mean, whether it's culture or personality, that Jesus is in the middle of the group and he yells out, I'm not going to do it because like I said, I'm too self-conscious to do such a thing, but he yells out and he gets people to, um, gets their attention. And he makes this claim, verses 37 and 38, anyone and whoever, man, I love that, anyone and whoever, like I am, I'm making a call to anybody who's here, well, what if I'm this kind of person or I'm this kind of person and maybe you're that kind of person? And Jesus says, anyone and whoever. Any, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I've got water. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's his claim. Great claim. His come and believe, your thirst will be quenched. It's reminiscent, I mean, we're not even very far into John, you might say. We haven't hit the halfway mark. And it's a lot like the woman at the well. Or even the bread of life discourse. He's saying, you come to me, you believe in me. And I'm going to satisfy you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you what you need. Now, uh, the third thing there that we see in Jesus is that he's the one who gives the water. right? And it's a symbol. It's important because at the Feast of Booze, out of everything that they did, water was part of it. You know, liquid was part of it. And so this water was a symbol of cleansing and renewal and blessing and life. And that's part of what's going on as they're celebrating. And if you, I mean, we don't do this much, but we did it just this morning, right? We took communion. And it's a symbol that we're celebrating what Jesus did. And so, it's, it's like as Brad directed us from Scripture, right? We take the bread and it represents it's bread and more, right? It's, it's food, but we're, we're contemplating the spiritual food that Jesus' broken body is for us. And the spiritual difference that Jesus spilled blood is for us, that transformational power uh, that's there. And so the, the symbol of water shows up, and Jesus says, he's the water. 
It's a commentary on the coming spirit in verse 39. Now this he said uh, uh, about the spirit. One of the cool things is after Jesus' work is done, and anybody who believes in him has his spirit. So you don't, you don't have to be credentialed. You don't have to be somebody that people recognize or whatnot. If you believe in Jesus, you have his spirit. And think about the way that this is described. Out of, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, that you get that, and this is true about you, he says. So, one, but it also says this, is once he's glorified. Now, glorified sounds like a churchy word. Actually, a very important word, especially in the Gospel of John, whenever you look at it, what it means is that he's condescended and he's identified with us as one of us. He, he became, you know, right? He's the Word of God incarnate. He's God incarnate. So he became one of us. Once he lives his perfect life and goes to the cross and dies and is buried and raised and returns to the Father, is glorified. He's talking about the completion of his mission. Right? The, the, the Spirit comes when Jesus has absolutely accomplished that victory. And that's when the believer uh, can receive Him. Let's look at the last, the fourth and final scene here in verses 40 through 44. Uh, well, we'll do this in two parts. The, the fourth scene is this. The presence of Jesus creates turmoil. And the first part is in verses 40, and 40 through 44. Let's look at that together. It says, When they heard these words, some of the people, so you get the, the idea here, said, this, is real, this really is the prophet. Verse 41, others, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the presence of Jesus creates turmoil uh, among the people, was the first part. There are divided opinions. See that in verse 43. There's a lot of talk about Jesus, but they, they're not coming to a consensus. They just don't see clearly what he is. So in verse 40, some people say he's the prophet. Now, this was the figure Moses had prophesied of. You know, he's the, he's, he, he, there would be a, a leader, a teacher who would come behind Moses, and he would be greater than he is. The greater Moses would come. Maybe he's the greater Moses. Maybe this is the guy. Seems like it to me, some of them said. Then verse 41, others said, no, he's not the prophet, he's the Christ. This is the promised one overall in the Old Testament, the anointed one that God had promised to send. And then there's a third category where people look and they'd say, well, maybe he is a teacher from God or maybe he is some kind of a worker. But he's not one of those significant figures way up there that, that we're anticipating. You know, and, and why did they do that in verse 42? Because of where he's from. It can't be, you know, uh, anybody significant because we know where, where he's from. And again, the Johannine irony comes out. He's disqualified because he's not something he actually is. Right? Um, now, I don't know if you know this, but as a kid, I grew up in rural Oklahoma. Um, Right, So I tell stories about that all the time, right? So I just want you to think about the logic of this that they're using. What if somebody said about me, well, listen, you know, Stacy doesn't know anything about growing up in rural Oklahoma in the 1970s and 80s because he's from Billings. 
Am I from Billings? Yes. Where am I from? I mean, crawdads and scars and, you know, chewing tobacco and baseball and all that stuff all mixed together, 4-H fairs. Uh, my wife just ruled her eyes at me when I said chewing tobacco. I was like, uh, it's part of the real story, right? I get it. I get it. But you put all that together and the idea that those two are mutually exclusive is, you know, it's not logical. What do they say about Jesus? Well, he, he can't be from the right place, and there they mean the physical place, because of where he's from right now. Okay, So there are divided opinions among the people. There are also, look at verses, and we'll wrap it up here, last part of the last scene, verses 45 through 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So this turmoil that Jesus creates isn't just among the people, it's among the leaders themselves. And the, the first part happens with the officers, right? They commission these officers uh, to go arrest Jesus, and they come back, and there's no Jesus, right? The, the officers come back with a charge, bring Jesus back. And they're Jesusless upon their return. And the reason is they're indecisive, and whenever they're asked about it, they say, like, you should have been there. Nobody's ever spoken like this guy. Again, with the irony. No one has ever spoken like him. Because no one is like him. No one can. He's the word of God making God known in your presence. And so nobody else is actually going to sound like him. That's who he is. But even more is think about what the leaders say. Unlike the common people, you know, those stupid heretics who don't know the law. We experts, we know things, right? Now, in ubiquitous media, um, it turns out that not everybody who claims to know things actually knows things. Right? And it's as though they say, listen, we're too godly. We're not going to get duped by all of that. We're way too godly to believe in what God is doing. We're too smart for that. We're, we're beyond that. Right? So that you see this that they're relying on their expertise and they're not really experts at all. Transitions, Nicodemus brings up a procedural point. John makes a note that he had gone to him before, John 3. Uh, we sang about that this morning. Part of the response there is, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, not perish, but have eternal life. And that's, that's part of that. Well, he brings up a procedural point. And, there's, and it's an interesting thing. Is Nicodemus starting to believe? Is he... You know, where is he? But he's part, of the, he's part of the ruling group. And so when he brings this up, he says, listen, shouldn't we at least give the guy a hearing? I mean, people, you know, de facto are. What he's doing and what he's saying is giving people reason to think. And shouldn't we give him a hearing? And they shut that down. They don't want to hear it. Um, they, they say that, uh, you know, check it and see it yourself. No prophet ever came from Galilee. Well, that's an overstatement. 
Jonah did. We're in Jonah now in life groups. Nahum probably did, and others we don't know about. So there's, there's that. They're clearly more rage than reason. What's going on in their minds is this thing with Jesus has to end. And so that's what we see. They, they, they oppose him. They want to arrest him. They're seeking to kill him. And yet, it's the narrative of not arresting Jesus. Okay? Let's do that third round. So we've seen it. In, we've seen the narrative of not arresting Jesus. We've seen it laid out in, in uh, four scenes. And now, the last thing I want to do is point out these keys to seeing Jesus when they clearly didn't. And uh, we'll do it efficiently. Uh, one of the things to note as we start to step into this is that a reader of the gospel of John and somebody on the ground during the time of Jesus is going to see this in different ways. John is cluing us in along the way, but they, they assume certain things to be true. They just know they're true that they're not, okay? Uh, but in the backdrop, there's this Old Testament promise. God's people have been waiting for this to be fulfilled all these generations, and it's that the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And so the, the question starts to buzz around Jesus. So let me give you the four keys out of this passage to see what they couldn't. Okay, number one, the word from. The word from. You look at the passage and you see the sights and you get this kind of, again, the irony. Now, people keep complaining, verse 27, why do they disqualify Jesus? We know where this man comes from, but do they? Um, look at verse 41. Uh, some say this is the Christ, but some, what's their objection? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Is not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, you know, where David was born? How about verse 52? Hey, uh, uh, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. People basically say he's not from the place. And what does John tell the reader? He realized the reader realizes that those folks don't have a clue. Jesus is from Bethlehem. Jesus is from the Father before time. John 1, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was sent by the Father. That's in this passage. He's returning to the Father. That's in this passage. Jesus is from the place of places. And they disqualify him because of where they think he's from. What's the significance there? Well, think about this. Where is Jesus from? Before time, before the foundation of the world, where is he from? He's from the Father. Uh, the significance is where you're from is what you represent. So a U.S. ambassador represents the U.S. wherever we send him or her, right? And God's ambassador was representing him to the world. It's not up to them. It's up to God. God gets to choose his ambassador. And the significance is that they have God's representative before them and they can't see him. Maybe it's because he just looks too much like the right thing and that's not what they want. Maybe it's because they assume they know and they don't. That's clearly the case. But anyway, where he's from. They dismiss him because he, they think he's not from where he's actually from. Number two, the prophet and or the Christ. And or. And or. See this in verse 40 and 41. Oh, it's a little subtle thing here that uh, looking back on the cross as believers so many years later, 
we'd find it maybe a little bit surprising, but see their debate? This really is the prophet. Others said this is the Christ. Um, they would look at it. It surprises us to think somebody would see those two figures as one or the other. Um, but many in that day did divide those. The promise of Moses, that that'd be one character, and then the, the Christ, the Messiah, would come as a different character, a different figure. What's driving people, though, is that they have this consuming amount of evidence before them. I want you to think about it. It's not as though Jesus is a topic of conversation that you could miss. Everybody is talking. Jesus is doing so much that who he is has to be dealt with in the imagination. Look at verse 31. At the end of it, it says, Many people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Just think about this. Like I said, they're consumed with evidence. Uh, that Christ is going to be a great figure, and they probably thought, how in the world could the Christ do more than, than this man is doing? And they're right, <laughs> because he is the Christ. Jesus is going to continue to prove this or uh, issue is a false dichotomy. You see, these two ideas he brings together into one. There's more than that. He is the greater Moses. He's the Christ. He is both. He's the one. Uh, all of that points to him. Number three is our, the word our. In verse 30, well, they wanted to arrest him. They were seeking to, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That word means a specific time, right? It's like an appointment. So the date and time is set in your calendar. If you have enough going on in your life, then you're probably going to have to use a calendar app, right? You, you put it in there, Otherwise, you forget your appointments and whatnot. You put it in there, and it's a specific date, and it's a specific time. There's a sense that that's the, the meaning there, is that there's an appointment, but while they're at the Feast of Booze here, uh, it's not time to engage in that appoint, appointment. It's a different date, and it's a different time. It's later. In the book of John, Jesus' hour always points ahead to something. The cross. The hour of his cross, that time of his cross, that means three things. They will arrest him. They don't hear. They can't hear. They will arrest him and execute him, but not yet. And they can't hear because God is sovereign and he's working out his plan. So this is absolutely on God's timetable, time regardless of the chess moves that people on the ground make. It's sort of ludicrous, the idea that, that people could thwart what God is up to. Um. And then finally, it's that the time of his mission to bear our sins on the cross. And so we see that God's plan is a redemptive plan. Okay. So that's the third one. But the fourth one really takes us back to the context here. It's the fulfillment of the feast. Uh, you notice when he makes that great claim in the middle of the feast, he says he's the one who gives water. That's his claim. Verses 37 and 38. Cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus' claim is not in the abstract. It's sufficient, you know, even if it stands. Like, if you don't know any of the background and you believe and you hear Jesus' claim, we get the idea of metaphorical thirst and need and that being met in someone great or in something great, right? And so Jesus is saying, I'm the one who gives water. You come to me and you'll drink. Everybody can get that from a sense of the human condition. But the context here is the Feast of Booze. And so what were they celebrating? 
celebrating. You know, part of what they would do is they'd, they'd put together booths or tents, and they would live in those. And, you know, if you lived in the country, you know, you'd put them outside. And if you lived in the city, they had flat roofs. You'd build it and put it on the top of your house. And you celebrated that because you were commemorating God's deliverance. He delivered us and we wandered in exile. And what did you live in? Lived in a tent or a booth or something like that. And then, well, how did you eat and drink? Well, the Lord provided. And so you were celebrating these different aspects of it. Harvest time, so they celebrated God's provision that way. But also water. Uh, And, you know, we're told here it symbolizes the breakthrough of the Spirit and everything that comes with that. It's provided through the rock in the wanderings, right? So they're remembering that in particular. There's no way you didn't... You didn't come because the skeptics could uh, struggle with this, right? Hey, we came upon a stream and the Lord provided water. No, no, there was no water. And speak to the rock, strike the rock. There's water. God blesses his people. And so water is a big deal that they're celebrating. In the wandering, in the desert where there is no provision, God provides. A big part of what he provides is water. Before their time, probably like, over 1,400 years before their time, this was commanded in the law. It's in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So it's commanded, listen, remember uh, how I delivered you. You're going to do this to symbolize this, and there's going to be water there uh, that represents part of it. There's a promise attached to it about 600 years before. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel talks about how the temple is there, and there's water coming out from under the temple. This is the eschatological temple. And, and it's a big word, right? It's the last day's temple, the final temple, right? And the water's flowing out from God's temple. And everywhere it flows, it brings life. Water bringing renewal and life and provision everywhere it flows. And then in Nehemiah's day, about 400 and say 40 some years before this, uh, people return from exile and they rediscover the Feast of Booths. Um, they, they read the law and they celebrated and they thank God in one of their prayers in the book of Nehemiah uh, for the water he provided, the water. Anyway, all that to say um, that when uh, you have that in the background, here's the, 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 the command and the promise of these waters flowing, giving life, and this being rediscovered in Nehemiah's day. And Jesus is saying in verses 37 and 38, Feast of Booths. That's fulfilled in me. What you're celebrating, that's me. Right? I, I am what you're celebrating. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. God has promised these things to you. All these things that you're doing represent his provision to you. And there was this tradition that it developed. Okay, the high priest would go away from the temple. He'd take a vessel with him. And he'd go to the pool of Siloam. And he would fill that, this vessel with water, and he led a processional all the way back to the temple. All these people following him, right? And there were, there were different things that they would do. Hold up their hands with a, uh, a symbol of citrus and, and, uh, and life and that, that kind of thing. And he would pour it out as part of the procedure of the, the law anyway was to offer drink offerings. But the high priest would come with water, and he would do some things in terms of pouring that uh, water out as a, as a symbol. And what did that water symbolize? Here the priest is carrying water in and there's a sense of anticipation of God's coming spirit someday. 
representing cleansing and life and renewal and blessing. Just like the temple in Ezekiel 47. And Jesus says, I'm right here. Everything that you're celebrating, I'm right here in front of you. I'm the one who brings you the water you're anticipating. I'm the one who gives you the spirit. So what they struggle with and what John shows us is two different things. They've got a force for the trees problem, right? You know, have you ever heard that where, oh, you can't see it because of the, you know, the, you, you miss the forest for the trees. Well, they've got a force for the trees problem. They're mired in this uh, complexity of all these strands of God's promises mixed in with some of their false assumptions and their bad hearts, and they can't see the forest, you know, because there are too many trees in the way to see the forest. And what John shows us is all those strands in the Old Testament, they weave into a whole. So all the streams flow into one ocean. Uh, all the trees make up one forest. And I'll just leave you with this. Jesus does not simply embody some part of Old Testament expectations. He fulfills the whole. All those elements in the Old Testament come together in one person, in Jesus. So as they contemplate the prophet Moses spoke of, well, that's Jesus. And they are looking for the Christ. Well, that's Jesus. And as they celebrate the feast, that represents the promise that Jesus brings. It's Jesus. So John is saying what they miss is the thing that they had to see. And I would just remind you and remind myself is that all the things that we think we've got to see, they all come together in Jesus. So look to him. Let's pray. Father, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who perfects us. Um, we, we come to you, we, we, we can't make ourselves what we ought to be. We have a Redeemer, we have a Savior who's given us the Spirit. We pray for friends here who don't know Jesus yet, and we pray that you would turn on the light and draw them to you, and that they would believe in Jesus because he is the one you promised. He is the one who brings salvation and, and takes us from alienation and estrangement, being separated from you, to being reconciled and forgiven and part of your family, part of your kingdom. So we pray by your grace that you would do that. For anybody here who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, that you draw them to you. There is no other way. We also pray for believers here that we wouldn't long for some strange waters um, that in terms of the lure of the world and its false promises, that we would see Jesus, we would behold him, and that we'd be quenched and satisfied and uh, invite others to him. Jesus is great. The one we can come to that uh, should we believe, whoever comes to him will never thirst, and out of us will flow uh, rivers of living water because of the Spirit. You're a great God, and you're a good God. We celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen.